I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, taking the first steps towards mental health treatment can be overwhelming. What will my insurance pay for? And what will others think? Despite all of these efforts over two decades now, mental health care is still treated differently. I'm not quite sure what we need to do to overcome it. I think seeing a lot of celebrities come out and talk about their own mental health struggles is a great start. Having conversations like this is another way to go. And later, when to reach out and how to find the right therapist. We'll get a firsthand account. I was just dissatisfied and exhausted all the time. I felt like I just wasn't showing up in the way that I wanted to be. Like I would spend Sundays just like collapsed in bed, not wanting to do anything, like watching TV all day. And that didn't feel right. Mental health care, the stigma and disparity, and the emotional and financial costs of finding treatment. That's coming up on Life Examined. As both a therapist and a public radio host who discusses mental health often, I get asked one question a lot. How do I find and afford mental health treatment? Whether it's locating a psychiatrist or therapist, learning whether or not treatment will be covered by insurance, the importance of finding the right match, questions of medication, these are all daunting issues, and it's hard to get started. The system is difficult to navigate. The lists of practitioners are frequently out of area or out of date. And many mental health care providers no longer take insurance. A shortage of providers, an increase in demand in the aftermath of COVID, combined with an onerous amount of paperwork to get reimbursed, have meant many practices are full, with patients paying hundreds of dollars an hour. Stigma is perhaps the biggest hindrance in accessing treatment. Despite laws to ensure equity, mental health and physical health are scrutinized differently by insurance companies. Many suffer in silence, struggle to find help, and are ashamed to speak up. Dr. Wesley Boyd, who writes about issues of social justice, human rights, and access to care, says the problem is widespread and warns that even those with resources and health insurance will have trouble getting the help they need. Wesley Boyd is professor of psychiatry and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine. He also lectures on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Wes, welcome to Life Examined. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to throw the kind of big question at you that we're exploring this hour. Why Why is it so hard to find a therapist? I mean, I'm sure people write or call you and say, what does it take to get one? But maybe you can just um, give us some ideas as to what we're dealing with culturally or medically that is making this so hard. It It is difficult for most people to access mental health care when they need it. And the reasons are multifactorial, to put it mildly. Um, First of all, there's generally a somewhat of a shortage of psychiatrists. There's definitely a huge shortage of child psychiatrists. Many practices around the country, psychiatry, psychology, social work therapy, and other therapists, many of those practices are just full. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone who's listening, no doubt, knows the ravages of COVID, not just on physical health, but on mental health as well. So even pre-COVID things were quite bad. COVID has made a bad situation completely dire for many people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Insurance is one of the big, I think, blockades when it comes to getting help because, you know, folks hear about what it would cost to see a therapist, 150, 200, 250. So um, for those that have access to healthcare, why, why is that such a tricky just system to navigate in terms of getting mental health treatment? Your point is absolutely correct that uh, trying to use insurance while seeing a mental health clinician can be very tricky and it's definitely not guaranteed. Um, Because there is generally a a shortage of therapists around the country, many therapists can actually keep a practice full. Many therapists can actually simply say they're not going to take any insurance and Mm -hmm. they'll still essentially keep a full practice. Why would they not want to deal with insurance companies? There are several reasons. One, insurance payments for psychotherapy services or psychiatric services are generally less to much less than what people could charge if they don't accept insurance. Additionally, when a practitioner accepts insurance in their uh, private practice, or this even applies to clinics, but when a therapist accepts insurance, they generally are going to have paperwork to do Mm -hmm. in order to get uh, reimbursed. And at times that care is going to be managed, meaning 
that the insurance company is going to put limits on how frequently uh, someone can be seen um, or the total number of visits uh, that someone can be seen. And so um, between the fact that the pay is often not that good when therapists, for, from the therapist's perspective, when they accept insurance, often the, the payment is not as good as it would be if they didn't accept insurance and the paperwork requirements are onerous. And yeah. so if, if you're a good therapist, you don't necessarily need to take insurance to keep a full practice. And this to me, I think is really kind of is damning and, and speaks to the problems in the system. You mentioned, for example, that sometimes there's like a quota. You're allowed to have six sessions or 10 sessions. That That's what an insurance company will pay for. Yet in the rest of the medical world, you don't get six sessions to see a pulmonologist or a cardiologist, right? Something seems to be very out of whack there. Oh, there are all kinds of ways in which insurance companies single out mental health care for scrutiny and I would say for profiteering. Um, they do exactly what you just said. They will limit the number of sessions a priori up front before you even know what the problem is. They'll say you can only be seen this many times if you want to use insurance. Yeah. Um, there are all kinds of other ways in which they're singling out um, mental health care for scrutiny as well. One example is that if you end up in a crisis situation or someone you love, uh, say you're feeling suicidal or possibly homicidal, and you end up in an emergency room and the mental health clinician in the emergency room decides that you need to go into the, to an inpatient hosp psychiatric hospitalization for your own safety or the safety of others, that mental health clinician is generally going to have to get on the phone, possibly on the computer, but get generally on the phone with an insurance company and ask for permission to admit you to a psychiatric hospital. Mm. The problem there is that the amount of time that that mental health clinician is going to spend on the phone with the insurance company is going to vary from uh, anywhere from, you know, possibly a few minutes, but frequently it can go well over an hour. In two different studies that we did at different facilities, one in Massachusetts and another one in Rhode Island, we found that um, mental health clinicians were spending on average in the first study 40 minutes on the phone to get permission from the insurance company to put someone in a psychiatric hospital. Wow. And in the second study where we had more data and more uh, patient encounters, clinicians were spending on average one hour on the phone trying to get this authorization. Why is that important? Because if you're a busy clinician overnight in an emergency setting and you know you still have eight or ten more people you need to see, you're going to think once, twice, or even three times before you decide to put someone in a hospital. Mm -hmm. The reason I brought this up with respect to singling out mental health care for scrutiny is there's no other area in medicine where you need to get that kind of prior authorization for an emergency stay. If a woman comes into an emergency room in labor, her obstetrician does not need to get on the phone with an insurance company asking for permission, spending anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour on the phone on average to get that woman hospitalized. Similarly, if you come in with uh, appendicitis or a kid comes in with pneumonia, the surgeon or the pediatrician does not need to get this prior approval. Why? Do insurance companies single out mental health care for this kind of scrutiny? I would say because there's a stigma. Unfortunately, there's still stigma around accessing mental health care, and insurance companies know it. And, and there's never been a massive public outcry for just this one practice uh, among many others that insurance companies do uh, to single out psychiatric and mental health patients for making money. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a staggering set of stories that you told us. And, and, and I wonder if we pan out for just a moment and think about why the stigma is still in place, why mental health treatment is still considered, I mean, I think kind of secondary is the way that you're talking about it, or something that maybe we can choose or not choose, or that the severity is not as great as other physical ailments. What What's going on culturally that this is still in place, do you think? I think the historical forces that have singled out psychiatric care and mental health care from the rest of medical care are pretty large. You know, there have been efforts at ensuring that insurance companies treat mental health issues on par with medical issues. There have been these kinds of efforts, they're called parity laws, P-A-R-I-T-Y. 
parity laws have been on the books really going back to the 90s. There was another one, I believe, in the mid 2000s. And, um, and then when Obamacare came through, there was yet another um, requirement that insurance companies treat mental health conditions on par with medical conditions. And yet, despite all of these efforts over two decades now, um, mental health care is still treated differently. I, I just think that the social forces are so large and there is still so much stigma that I'm not quite sure what we need to do to overcome it, but we certainly need to do it. I think seeing a lot of celebrities come out and talk about their own mental health struggles is a great start. I think having conversations like this uh, is, is another way to go. Another issue, and this is something that a lot of folks ask me about, is, okay, they're, they're, let's say you're ready to get treatment or you're ready to see a therapist. And then, I mean, this actually happened to me. I remember I, I wanted to see a therapist and I called my insurance company and I got this just completely outdated list of names of people who maybe lived in my area, maybe didn't. Some didn't even accept the insurance anymore. Okay, so you have a stack of names, and then maybe you start Googling or you go on Psychology Today, which I think does a pretty good job. But it's just, all of this is such hard information to sift through and sort through. And I think for many, it's too much and too onerous to even make a decision. Do you think that's true? I mean, just that there's really no easy avenue to find somebody. There is no easy avenue. I've, I've uh, assisted friends, I've assisted family members trying to connect them to therapists. And, and as you said, it is not easy to put it mildly. And, and I'm very well connected uh, in the mental health community. Um, per your statement about the uh, lists of providers that insurance companies will give you, um, I've done now four different research studies, at least, where we have looked at those lists of supposedly in-network providers provided by major insurance companies and actually pretended to be either a patient seeking mental health care myself mm. or in one, actually in two studies now, we've pretended to be the parent of a 10-year-old child who we're trying to get into mental health care. Yeah. So we've actually taken those lists that insurance companies provide and made phone calls in what's called a secret shopper survey where you pretend to be the person needing care. And what we found is that those lists overwhelmingly are filled with wrong numbers. They're filled with practices that are full. And as you said, they're even practices that don't even accept the insurance. This, uh, we, we did uh, several studies like this pre-COVID. We have just completed one post-COVID literally just wrapped up about a month ago. And the ability to get psychiatric appointments off of those lists used to be up to about 26%. We haven't tallied all the numbers yet, but right now trying to get a child psychiatric appointment post COVID, if we even got 5%, uh, appointments 5% of the time off the list that were provided to us by the insurance company, I'd be shocked. Wow, 5%? That's that's shocking. We don't have final numbers. It's It's got to be well below 10. I just don't know exactly how bad it is, but it is really bad. And, and the problem, I mean, there are many problems here, but one of them is that insurance companies have no motivation to make sure that those lists that they provide people like you and me to make sure that they're accurate. Why? because the way insurance companies make money is they take premiums in and then the less care that is actually accessed that they have to pay for it, the more money they get to keep in their own pockets. Right. And so if the lists don't work um, for people like you and me and everyone listening, they work actually quite well for the insurance companies when it comes to turning a profit. Mm. Let's now talk about what it's like when you are able to connect with someone, maybe it's a psychiatrist, maybe it's a therapist, and you're trying to figure out if this is the right person for you to work with. Um, hopefully there's an opening, like I said, so for some this may be imaginary, but I think this is another component if you can make it a little bit further down the road. So say, let's say it's a psychotherapist. What what are aspects that can create a good healing fit or a reason in which it would be worthwhile to stay with this person, engage in some type of therapy? Uh, the relation in, in mental health care, I think everyone probably knows this either intuitively or otherwise, but in mental health care, the relationship between the patient and the provider is pretty essential. 
and it's actually part of the healing component. Um, you know, there, there are different kinds of therapists. So, um, you know, there are people who do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the most tested and uh, best treatment, in fact. It's, it's a non-medication treatment for a lot of conditions like depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance use problems, you name it. But cognitive behavioral therapy really is, is one way to go. Another um, might be dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a subset of cognitive be, uh, behavioral therapy. And dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, is really was developed to help people with intense mood swings, suicidal behaviors, and borderline behaviors. Uh, and then there are other ways you could go, you know, in some instances, if, if you see a psychiatrist, they might be prone to prescribe medications. Uh, medications probably are generally oversold um, and overhyped, but in many instances, they can be absolutely life-saving. Um, so back to the, the, the general uh, question that you raised, you know, what's important if you actually are lucky enough to get in the door, you really need to find someone who you feel like understands you, um, who is also well-trained and um, has appropriate boundaries uh, and skills. Yeah. If you could just say a little bit more about the importance of fit there. I mean, I, I've seen you know some studies, even when I was in school, that that actually might be one of the most important things, even kind of beyond, and we can talk a little bit more about CBT or DBT, but just... The, the feeling of being with another human that is empathic and kind and listening is, is almost the foundation, I think, of a good therapeutic relationship. I completely agree. Um, and I, I know some of the studies that say the most important and beneficial factor for therapy is the uh, quality of the rela relationship between the patient and the, and the therapist. And I I agree with that. The importance of having a good fit is so essential to a, a, a good outcome or even a good experience while you're in therapy. I'll, I'll give one vignette. Um, one of my teachers in residency, his name was John Mack. Um, he actually is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, um, Pulitzer Prize winner for writing a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Absolutely brilliant guy. I was very tight with John. and. I asked him if he ever gave recommendations for therapists when people would ask. He says, oh, I get asked all the time. I said, well, what do you say? And he said, I don't give an answer. I said, why not? He said, because it's like going on a blind date and if things go south because it's not a good fit, they're gonna look to me and blame me mm -hmm. for the poor fit. Um, I think the story is, is significant. It certainly talks about the the absolutely essential need to have a good relationship with a therapist. I don't go nearly as far as John. I do give recommendations at times, but um, I give them with a lot of caveats. I, I love that idea of the first date. I think that's a really interesting way to, to go about it. You really have no idea until you're there. And sometimes your body will give you the answer, just the feeling you get. So I, I really appreciate that. And I was wondering, too, if, if you could just spend maybe a, a minute or two talking about, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, because this is the one that shows up a lot. As you said, it's been the most uh, rigorously studied. Um, how does it work? Like, what are some of the basic ideas behind the principles? Well, I'm not an expert in CBT or DBT for that matter, but CBT is really based on several ideas. One, that psychological problems are based in faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking. Also, psychological problems arise because of learned behaviors of unhelpful, I'm sorry, learned patterns of unhelpful behaviors. Um, and the key with CBT is the idea that you can benefit if you can learn better ways of thinking about and coping with the various things that you have to deal with every day. And so it really comes to, um, CBD comes down to trying to restructure and change thinking patterns and ways that you respond to situations that you're in. Right. And, you know, I can just add as someone in the field that, you know, if somebody's saying, should I go to CBT, it can oftentimes be a little bit more of an active form of therapy where you'll go home uh, with homework, you'll have worksheets to do, you'll be keeping things like thought journals. It's, it can be something that extends outside of the therapy room, which some people really like and some people don't, to be honest. You know, some I think 
are more attracted to just you go in for an hour and you leave it there and you go home. And so um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I think there are just different ways of doing therapy that people should do a little bit of research on probably. I, I completely agree. And you're right about homework and, you know, CBT and certainly DBT as well can be very, well, at times, almost like being in a classroom as opposed to, you know, kicking back in a comfy chair and, and being asked about what your childhood was like or, you know, what your thoughts are about your early parenting and things like that. Yeah. And just for our listeners out there, I mean, I think there's a lot of other interesting schools you could look into. I mean, there's, I find, I don't know, Wes, if you come across this, you'll see things like internal family systems, which does a lot of um, internal meditative work of going back to different forms of ourself or different parts of ourself. There's DBT, like you mentioned, and kind of more traditional talk therapy of Carl Rogers. I mean, there is kind of a beautiful array of stuff out there, again, if you can get in the door, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at my previous hospital in Boston, there were lots and lots of therapists who did internal family systems work, and uh, I never actually did the training. I was exposed to it a lot, however, and you know there are a lot of excellent aspects of that kind of therapy as well. I, but as you said, it's it's really unfortunately frequently a question of whether you can even get into the door yeah. to see a therapist for a first visit. Another question I know a lot of folks have is, when should one go see a therapist versus a psychiatrist? Um, and I, I'm sure that's something you get asked as well. So what are your thoughts on that? It's a great question, and I would love to punt it, but I won't, uh, given the forum. First, before you even get to that point, uh, you know, there are a lot of things you can do possibly to help yourself and, and, and possibly not even need to go see a professional um, you know, eating right, um, moderating drinking and other substance use, uh, getting exercise, sleeping um, as well as possible and so on. You know, the, the things that all of us know but don't necessarily do. So uh, before I even thought about professional help, I would try to make sure I was taking as good of care of myself as I could. Um, but if problems are big enough, if, if things are happening in your life that are jeopardizing some aspect of your life that's important to you, your job, your relationship, uh, your relationship with your family, et cetera, then you ought to start thinking about professional help. Seeing a therapist initially might be a good start. And if that person, uh, if you meet with that person and he or she thinks that they can be helpful doing psychotherapy of some sort without medications, uh, that's always preferable, of course. Um, but there are some times where medications end up being a first-line treatment or a very um, sought-after second-line treatment. And in those situations, if you have a sense yourself that you might have one of those conditions, you know, certain um, attention deficit disorder, for example, and other conditions, might most lend themselves to psychopharmacologic treatment, seeing a psychiatrist, um, but lots of others, you, with lots of other conditions, you might want to start with a non-psychiatrist. You said a little bit earlier that medications tend to be maybe overprescribed or thought of as a silver bullet that they may or most likely may not be. Can, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in the medication world? The reason I said that about medications is a lot of times if you have a mental health condition and you don't get any kind of professional help and you never take a medication, over time that, that condition might resolve. Um, if you, in that instance that I just mentioned, if you went right to a psychiatrist, you got on a medication and the problem ultimately goes away, you're going to think that the medication is the thing that got you better as opposed to, well, maybe I, I could have just done nothing and still gotten better. So the whole issue of medications and psychiatry is, is one for me that's absolutely fraught. Uh, the story I tell about going to medical school, I went, uh, before I went to medical school, I got a master's in philosophy. I was in a PhD program in religion and culture. And when I went to medical school, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. It's the only reason I went to, to medical school. And I swore two things when I got to medical school. 
First, I would never draw blood. And secondly, I would never prescribe psychiatric medications. Of course, within about four weeks, we were practicing drawing blood on each other. And despite my bias against medicines going into medical school, I have seen many, many times when they're absolutely life-saving. Yeah, at this point, I can't count how many times I've, I've treated people with medications where I'm convinced the medication is what got them better. The reason for me the whole issue is so fraught is that psychiatry, more than any other discipline in medicine, has significant ties to the, psycho, to the pharmaceutical industry. The very book that is written by the American Psychiatric Association that is the compendium of all the diagnoses, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That book is now in its fifth edition with several revisions here and there along the way. And the last two editions of that book have been written by individuals, 70% of whom have significant ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Stated another way, 70% of the people who participate in writing the diagnostic manual, but the current edition and the previous edition, had significant ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Why is that important? That's important because the, psycho, the, the pharmaceutical industry knows that the more diagnoses there are, the more things there are to prescribe medications for. And so from the very creation of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the ties are really deep to the, psycho, to the pharmaceutical industry. There ends up, therefore, being a lot of pressure on psychiatrists to prescribe medications. The other things that happen are that if you're too busy to actually read literature, the people that you're going to end up hearing about new medications from are going to be pharmaceutical reps. Um, and they're there to ensure that you prescribe as many drugs as possible. Um, so there's just, there's just a ton of pressure on psychiatrists to prescribe medications, and it's hard to say no. And it's hard to, instead of just pulling out your prescription pad or your computer and ordering a medication after 15 or 20 minutes of, of sitting with someone, it's really hard to get to know them and to try to figure out, well, do they really need a medication or not? Mm-hmm. I'm glad I think you could give us a little bit of the background on the ties to the to the pharmaceutical industry. And um, this is something we've explored on this show, kind of the role of medications. At the same time, you also mentioned that it can be very helpful for folks. And, and I've kind of seen this, this idea or uh, this standard thrown around that it's really the combination of medication and psychotherapy that's become a gold standard. I mean, treating it both in terms of, you know, what we know about medicine and what we know about its relationship to the psyche and emotions and environment where there can be tremendous gains. So th there does seem to be a kind of magical relationship between the two when it works. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. The combination of medications and psychotherapy is often the best way to go. There are some conditions where psychotherapy alone is absolutely sufficient. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy for certain phobias, for example, fear of heights, um, et cetera, or post-traumatic stress. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy alone can often be completely sufficient. But there are other conditions, I would put true bipolar illness in this camp Bipolar illness, which, by the way, is, is frequently overdiagnosed. I'm talking about the actual illness of bipolar, not the way it gets overdiagnosed. But bipolar illness is one of the more biologically driven psychiatric uh, illnesses that we have. And medications for someone who has that condition are absolutely essential. Um, it's very hard. You could have the best psychotherapist in the world, and if you have bipolar illness, that's not going to stop you from falling into, you know, horrific lows of depression or, you know, flying into mania, for example. And so medications have to be, generally, have to be a mainstay for someone who has bipolar illness. But even for that condition, I think it's often important, if not always, to have a therapist involved as well. Why? Because that illness, I'm just using it as an example, but you could, you could extrapolate this to other illnesses. 
um, that illness in particular can be so devastating for people. You know, when people are manic, they can do things um, in their manic state which cause them ongoing um, stress, pain, embarrassment, you name it, once they're long past their manic state, right? So, I mean, I've seen people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of several hours in a manic state or engage in, you know, um, extramarital affairs uh, or have lots and lots of uh, unprotected sex in the, in the throes of mania, etc. And so having a therapist to help process what happens and what has happened over the course of one's illness can be absolutely essential. So, you know, I'm using that just as an example to say, yeah, in that case, a combination of medications and therapy uh, could be the thing that's absolutely life-sustaining for someone. Yeah, it's an interesting example. And um, we talked about this uh, with with a guest, Daniel Bergner, recently, who, who wrote a book about his brother who was bipolar, ultimately was able to find a way to exist without medication. And, and I'd be curious, I mean, to, for you to reflect on this, I know you haven't heard the interview, but there was this idea of looking at alternative ways of treating what we might think of as more severe mental illness. It, they could be things like connecting uh, with a spiritual practice or with a community or with other things that can be complementary to a healing process. I, I wonder if some of that stuff lands with you. Yeah, you don't see me, nor do your listeners, but I'm nodding my head while you're talking. Yes, absolutely. There are uh, alternative ways of, of healing and, and finding solace and comfort. Um, I think also, well, I guess this is related, but I, in the society in which we live, which is highly industrialized, you know, individuals with mental illness, I'm thinking psychotic illness in, in this case, can be very ostracized and and um, not be part of the mainstream. Whereas I think in many in, in in many less industrialized settings, I could imagine people with serious mental illness just being incorporated into daily life in a very natural way. And I think something like that, for example, might be really very healing. Those individuals may not need medications because they're not um they're just more incorporated into daily life and and you know just part of everyone part of the fabric of life as opposed to what frequently happens unfortunately in this country where you know they're ostracized lastly just thinking about some of these bigger questions of equity and treatment um what do we know about folks in marginalized groups um, in terms of the access they have for mental health? I mean, if it's bad for anybody, I can only imagine for those in poor communities around the country, it may be nearly impossible. Yeah, not having resources, being disadvantaged, uh, being poor, being uninsured, all of these make the entire question of accessing mental health care even more impossible. COVID has been devastating in all kinds of ways, but it has also laid bare the fact that those who are minorities or disadvantaged are at even greater risk in just about every kind of way. So, so COVID has, has laid that bare. We already knew that anyway, but um, when it comes specifically to accessing mental health care, people with means have a substantial advantage over those that don't and it's um it's absolutely heartbreaking mm -hmm. i've worked in public settings from the time i finished medical school until this very day and and i do that very intentionally because i believe that people no matter what their socioeconomic status no matter what their ethnicity or race ought to have equal access to uh, all forms of health care, including mental health care. I've been speaking with Dr. Wesley Boyd, professor of psychiatry and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine, also lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for, for sharing your research and your thoughts with us. This was, this was really helpful, Wes. I appreciate it. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me, and uh, I'll talk about these issues anytime to anybody. Thank you so much. When we come back, meeting the therapist. How do you know who's best for you? We'll get some firsthand experience. And a quick note to our Facebook group, we're getting close to 500 members, just about 20 away. And we'd love if you can help us eclipse that number. 
What I've noticed is that the more members we have, the richer and more diverse the conversation becomes, especially around topics like mental health and healing. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And when you're there, let us know what you think about this show. How did you find a good therapist? Or what were some of the problems in finding someone to begin with? We'll be back in just a moment. This is Life Examined on your local station, KCRW. Stay close. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Dr. Wesley Boyd highlight the challenges and stigma around mental health treatment. But when or why should someone seek treatment to begin with? Is there a guide to finding a therapist? And what kind of questions should you ask? In her article called How to Find a Therapist for the First Time, writer Charlotte Coles shares her experience with therapy and why she feels it's important to construct a support system for yourself. Charlotte Coles is a freelance writer and columnist for New York Magazine's The Cut and The New York Times, and she joins me now. Charlotte, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. Uh, So Charlotte, take us back to kind of the beginning of the piece and also maybe a bit earlier in your life when you realized that something just wasn't feeling right. You wanted to take action with your mental health. What, What was going on for you? And maybe you can share a bit of that with us. Yeah, I was in my mid-20s, and and at the time, it really felt like something was, like, deeply wrong. And looking back, I think that I was probably going through something that a lot of people go through, which is just feeling, like, exhausted at a really demanding job and not really knowing where it was going and feeling discouraged that I didn't totally feel like I was where I wanted to be. On paper, everything was great. Like, I had a nice boyfriend who is now my husband. Um, I was, I had a great job. Um, I could support myself. My family was good. Um, You know, I, I had really great friends. But I was just sort of dissatisfied and exhausted all the time and felt like I just wasn't, I felt like I just wasn't showing up in the way that I wanted to be. Like I would spend Sundays just like collapsed in bed, like not wanting to do anything, like watching TV all day. And that didn't feel right. You know, I was just like super tired. And I I wasn't sort of one of the textbook signs of depression is like you don't enjoy the things that you normally do. Right. And I, I don't think I was clinically depressed at the time, but I think that I was exhibiting some of the signs of depression. And, and I really, I just like didn't feel good about it. I, I really felt like there were things that I, things that I wanted to be doing that I wasn't, and I couldn't figure out what was preventing me from doing them. So as you began this search, I mean, I think this is, it's, this is where people will get thrown off the course pretty quickly because of a lot of issues. I mean, where do you begin the search? Is it looking online? Is it getting a referral? Is it having to find someone in network? I mean, we could talk about all of that. But but for you, how did you begin the process of looking? What And, and how did that go? Yeah. I mean, I like kissed a couple of frogs, which mm-hmm. sounds a little bit rude maybe, but I, I did... I did look around and again, luckily I had a friend to help me um, and she suggested looking, I think it was through psychology today. And I think that most, most therapists have a profile on psychology today. It may not be like a really slick one, but Mm -hmm. most therapists have some kind of presence there. So I started looking on psychology today. I wanted to find someone whose office was wasn't that hard to get to. Um, I had really long hours at work and I wanted to be able to go in the evenings after work. I didn't want to have to like leave work in the middle of the day and then go back. So there were some logistical things that I, I sort of had in mind. Um, 
but I, I also wanted someone who had a client base that was somewhat like me, you know, not people who were necessarily like treating teenagers or treating older adults going through, you know, midlife crises. So, so I kind of set a couple of parameters and, um, I think I reached out and I, I found some people and I, I ran them past Michelle, my friend, and asked her what she thought. And she, I think she, she was like, these people could all be great. Um, and then I reached out to them and I set up an initial appointment. Um, and I think I saw three, I think I saw three different people and it was actually the first woman I saw, it was very clear right off the bat that she was not what I wanted. Hmm. Why is that? <laughs> um, I think that the vibe was just weird. Like I walked in and just even sort of like her presence, I just didn't feel totally comfortable off the bat. And um, which I think is, you know, very subjective. And that's something that you can examine and work around. I think that if I were to be in this situation again, I now would sort of like have the tools and the emotional wherewithal to even bring that up. Like you can bring that up in therapy and be like, I feel a little bit weird in here and I'm not really sure why. And then you can sort of explore that with the therapist and, and that's great information. But if you're, you know, at the time I was young and I really didn't know what I was doing and all I could really work with was just, you know, thinking about how I felt and not wanting to feel that way. And maybe even say a little bit more just about how that can feel and what the room feels like in the person. I mean, for, for some, this is the most vulnerable moment of their life. And um, suddenly you're just in this closed room with a person. Maybe maybe share a little bit about that. Oh, my God. Totally. Yeah. Well, one thing that I remember was that she had her computer, like she had a big desktop computer that was like on and bright and facing where I was sitting and her chair was kind of like next to the computer. So I was like looking at her, but then also her computer was sort of like blaring in my face. Uh-huh. And um, and it was just, and there were like wires all around. It was just like really distracting. And I kind of felt like I'd like walked in in the middle of her like answering emails or something, which I probably had, but it, it felt like it just felt very jarring to me now that I know a little bit more about therapy and I have interviewed many therapists over the years. That would be a pretty big no-no. Like that's not, especially since a lot of people are, clients are probably coming from work and have work stresses, having like a big laptop and a desk staring them in the face right. um, during the session could could be like not very soothing. Mm. But I remember that specifically and I also remember... And again, this this is just stuff that was that was weird to me, right? For most people, this probably wouldn't be a big deal. But she had these like super spiky heels on and a one of those reclining chairs. And so she like got in her chair and reclined the chair and her feet and heels were like rested up on the bottom of the chair, you know, uh-huh, so I could see uh-huh. the bottoms of like these really pinky spiky heels. And I was just like, <laughs> ugh. Right. Um, so it was a very it was a very visceral thing. So so it seemed like there was just sort of a lot of like I don't know, I just I didn't feel super comforted by just the sort of how how things felt in the room and then I sort of talked to her about why I was in therapy, which like again, I couldn't totally put my finger on, but things just weren't really feeling right. And at the end of this session, she sort of gave me like a hot take that just was totally off. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah. And she um, she was like, I mean, it sounds like you're really overcomplicating your life and maybe you just want to get married to your boyfriend and have a family and you want simpler things than what you think you want. Wow. And I remember huh. being like, that is not true. <laughs> and, and, and just, you know, and it wasn't that, you know, I did eventually marry that boyfriend, but at the time I, that like just wasn't something I was thinking about at all. And it, it was not part of any of the, um, the things that I was sort of grappling with in my day-to-day life. And I just remember feeling like a sort of insulted by that presumption that, you know, I just wanted to get married and have a family like that was felt very um, I mean, sexist and, and also just weird, but be just feeling like 
it was it was almost a relief. I was like, all right, you and I just clearly like you just do, did not understand anything I just said. So right, right. Moving on. Yeah. Well. So then tell us about kind of the second frog that you kissed along the way too. I'm, I'm curious, just, yeah. I think these stories are, are helpful for people to hear that, that there, you really need, from my understanding, to, to kind of shop around. So the second woman I saw was, it was less obvious to me that it wasn't going to work. Um, but she did actually start falling asleep during our sessions, oh, no. uh-huh. um, which which like you hear stories about that and it was you know it was like i think i went at like 8 p.m at night like it wasn't it wasn't like a middle of the day session um and maybe she was just very tired but i really i actually went to her twice because the first time i was like i think i might like this person i'm not really sure and i went back to see her again and even when she wasn't sort of actually sleeping she she just had a very sort of sedate energy, I guess you could say. And, and I, I felt, I don't know, I, f- it, it felt very passive. Like I felt like I was just sort of talking and, and she was, um, you know, the, the joke about therapy being like, okay, and just how did that make you feel? And, and having the therapist just kind of like ask you questions so that you feel better because you're just talking about yourself. Like that's not really, I wanted someone more active than that. Mm-hmm. So um, after the second session with her, I, I, I had also made an appointment to see a third person. Um, and that wound up being the person that I went to go see, yeah. um, for many years. So then tell us about the therapist that, that did work out because it sounds like you were able to meet someone that, with whom you felt comfortable and it was just the right fit. Yeah, I think it's hard to describe, but I remember, when I went to go see her, she just f- seemed like someone I wanted to know and seemed like someone who could understand what I was trying to say. And and at the end of our first session, she sort of like drew up kind of a, a synopsis of what it seemed like I was struggling with. And... Um, and she framed it more as questions, like questions about my work and questions about um, my relationship and some things that we wanted to explore further and that she thought would be helpful to talk about and think about some more. And to me, that was that was really inviting and comforting that, um, you know, she didn't have answers, but she had really good questions for me um, to think about and I felt just immediately comforted by her presence and, um, and I remembered, and so I, I kept going back and, um, after a couple of sessions, I remember just feeling calmer and, um, and more even keeled. And it wasn't like I had like a lightning bolt moment or, you know, like she didn't have any sort of silver bullets for fixing the things that were bothering me, but it was it was more that she helped me think about them differently. Well, as we begin to to wrap up, I I think there's this idea that one only goes to a therapist in a crisis, and I, you know it sounds like you are going through a really difficult period of your life. Whether we call it a crisis or not, it, that's that's for you to tell me. But maybe I, I I'm just curious about what you've learned from therapy and if you would say hey you know what i think you don't need to be in a crisis it would be helpful at any time or what what were some of your reflections around that in terms of when and why it's important to go yeah and if anything i think it's great to go to therapy when you're not in a crisis because you just have a little bit more mental space to construct a support system for yourself um mm-hmm. you know for dealing with with more day-to-day issues, which I think are, are just as worthy of, um, of help and attention. Learning how to understand how you're feeling in a conversation at a given moment is, at least for me, it was really difficult. I think we're so trained to be, um, you know, just easy to be around. And, and I think that there are plenty of 
interactions um, in work and in life where, you know, you don't need to provide so much information about how you're feeling. Obviously, that's just not, um, that's not how relationships work. But um, in therapy, if you're feeling uncomfortable or if things are not going the way that you want them to go, you can speak up and that information is actually really important for your therapist and how they respond to it is really important for you. And so I think that that is something that can be learned um, through therapy and and makes therapy more worthwhile. Um, so I, I think that, you know, now I have friends who are like, oh, I just had this really, like, frustrating conversation with my therapist. She said this and it really bothered me. And I'm like, well, then you have to tell your therapist that it bothered you. Like you can't just complain about it afterwards. Like this is information that is important for your therapist to know. So I think, I think that that all is a a skill that, that comes with time and experience um, so that you can really get the most out of therapy because obviously no one just wants to go to therapy and complain every week and then feel like nothing is changing. Right. Finally, thinking about where you are now, and in particular, I think your communication skills, maybe with your husband or family, your colleagues, do you feel that they've benefited through therapy? Oh, totally. Totally. I I really feel like it's almost a responsibility that people have to the people that they love um, and care about in their lives is that they take care of their mental health. And I am always so, so grateful to my loved ones when they go to therapy or, you know, go to the doctor or take care of themselves. Like if you aren't taking care of yourself, it means that you are putting more of that responsibility on your loved ones. And sometimes this discourse around therapy that it's like navel gazing and selfish. And that to me is so laughable because I think that Sure, maybe if you're going to a bad therapist who is not doing a good job, maybe it's um, it's not fulfilling its purpose. But for the most part, its purpose is to help you show up in your life in the best possible way. And like, what more could your loved ones benefit from than that? I've been speaking with Charlotte Coles, writer and columnist for New York Magazine's The Cut and The New York Times. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. All right. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We'd love to hear from you about this episode. What's been your experience and approach to accessing therapy? How did you find someone good? What are some of the tips you've taken away from your sessions? Chime in on our Facebook page as we get closer to 500 members. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, your host. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.